1: And we're back with an all-new Keep It Home Edition. Hey, guys.
2: Hello, everyone. How are you doing?
3: I'm feeling sprightly. I got up extra early today for no reason, and I'm, like, the uh, the iced coffee, the aforementioned iced coffee from last week has been consumed, so I've got those electrified eye sockets going, which... Charm everybody.
2: I must have picked up on your energy, Lewis, because I, too, was up at like 5 a.m., and now I feel like a whole human when we record this podcast instead of the, like, the semblance of one that I usually am.
3: Yeah. I don't know <laughs> who gets up this early, but I feel like Blythe Danner greeting the day early <laughs> in, in my <laughs> denim shirt. I have
1: no idea what was going on with me either, but I was also up early, and I went to bed at a reasonable time. I was just sitting on my couch reading a book listening to the Last Black Man in San Francisco soundtrack and the Melancholia soundtrack. Mm. I read to um, film scores now.
2: Oh, that's smart.
1: The silence is just sort of horrifying.
2: That's fair.
3: Nobody loves saying the words film score more than you. Do you think I'm impressed? Because I'm not <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh,
1: But we do have an exciting episode this week. We do have Andre Holland here with us.
2: Ooh.
1: He is adorable, accomplished, a man. Quite. Yeah, I love, I, I adore Andre Holland. I actually interviewed Andre a few years ago for MTV News when he mm-hmm. was doing the August Wilson play Jitney on Broadway. So I had to dig up that interview to remember what I said to him. That's always fun, looking at your old writing.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't, oof, I don't know how you did that, but I'm sure you were great. I'm sure you're great. Are you gonna, is it that you don't wanna ask him the same stuff? Do you cycle back so you know what you guys talked about in that one? Well, way? yeah,
1: d- didn't, didn't wanna retread. You know,
2: Mm.
3: the amount of times like people have to restate the same information or have the same takes after talking about filming something that ended nine months ago or so. Like I'm a little sympathetic to actors having to go through that. I mean, just you have to keep entertaining yourself as you retell these stories. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. I feel like
1: (laughs) that's how you get people to be entertaining or spontaneous at a junket. You just immediately bring up something from their past that you were really into that they weren't expecting people to bring up mm-hmm. because they're there expecting to talk about this movie
3: for eight hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I remember one time I was interviewing somebody. I want to say it was Jamie Presley or something. And she said to the person off screen, how many more interviews do I have to do? And the person goes, "Uh, 41. <laughs> yeah. like, they have to do so many. What? They, they have to do so many more, uh, interviews per day. So if you can bring up anything... It's helpful.
2: Yeah, you, you have to go full Nardwar and find something from like the year they were born that <laughs> they mm-hmm. don't even know that they remember. Before
1: they get bored to death by Pop Sugar. Who <laughs> 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 <Sorry, laughs> always get invited. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, girls. <laughs> uh, we will also be, of course, talking about the culture we consumed this week. Then we're going to talk about these Pulitzer Prize winners.
3: I've never heard of these prizes prizes for helping other people using (laughs) writing. It seems suspicious to me.
1: (laughs) We'll be right back. Hey, keep it listeners, there are two special elections for open house seats coming up Tuesday, May twelfth.
2: California State Assemblywoman Christy Smith is the Democrat running in the special election to serve the rest of former Rep Katie Hill's term in California's 25th Congressional District. This race is a toss-up, and Republicans see it as one of their best pickup opportunities, so they're making a big investment. If you live in the district, make sure to return your ballot as soon as possible. You can go to votesaveamerica.com CA25 to find out how you can donate or volunteer no matter where you are.
3: In Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District, Democrat Trisha Zunker is on the ballot. She is currently an Associate Justice of the ho Chi. Supreme Court in the Ho Chunk Nation in Wisconsin and would be the first Native American member of Congress from the state of Wisconsin. Find out more at votesaveamerica.comslash Wisconsin. This week, surprisingly, had quite a bit. Of culture, Yeah, it does seem surprising when we have a lot to consume. I'm worried because then I think, oh, then we won't have much next week or we're running out or whatever.
1: Yeah, but things seem to be increasingly happening more often in the midst of this pandemic. So maybe people are finally settling into a groove. Or maybe we were just in a regular lull where things weren't going to be released anyway, at least television wise and now there is a wealth of things to watch.
3: Well, I mean, I think this will dwindle, but we'll enjoy it for now.
2: Yeah. I wonder how much longer we have before everything that's been produced and is in post-production is no longer available. So we'll find out. But... I did watch something, finally, that I'm excited to talk about.
1: Yeah, what was that? Oh.
2: Have you, are you guys caught up, or did you watch anything at all of The Last Dance? Of course, the Michael Jordan documentary.
3: I'm four episodes in.
1: Yeah, I did not catch the most recent episodes.
2: I did cave, and I started watching it. I didn't think it would be for me. I've never been a sports person until when I realized how gay basketball is. <laughs> it's
1: very gay. <laughs> Go on. Dennis Rodman. De- First Come of all, Dennis
2: Rodman. That is, should be prime example. But two, it is sweaty men getting in each other's faces, fighting all year for a piece of jewelry. Like, it is the gayest thing for a championship ring. It is so gay. So I so I, I, I got involved, and um, Kobe was in one of the last two episodes that just came out on Sunday, and it was very heartening to see him speak. It was uh, more heartening than it was sad, and he talked a lot about how Michael, you know, there would be no Kobe if there was no Michael Jordan, and, of course, in turn, I'm sure there'd be, like, no Steph Curry or Kawhi Leonard if there was no Kobe. So it was... <sighs> It was sad, but it was very interesting and fun, and Michael Jordan was actually a very funny guy.
3: Yeah. Michael Jordan's sense of humor is sometimes very cutting.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He vacillates between funny and sort of being an asshole. He's sort of like the Erica Kane of basketball. So That's why I enjoy watching. Um, He, (laughs) you know, punching people, Mm. (laughs) clearly lying about gambling with his... um, Shades on. <laughs> uh, I love that classic interview. And uh, the Kobe thing is, yeah, I'm, I haven't watched the Kobe episode yet, and I'm going to have to get in the right headspace for it. It seems so weird that that was recently. Yeah, It truly seems like it was over a year ago Yeah, that Kobe died, but not so.
3: <sighs> well, first of all, they need a whole episode still about – Michael's conspicuous hotness. Because even among, it's like a good looking team, the Chicago Bulls, but Michael <laughs> Jordan straight up looks like a model. It just is so bothersome to me. Like, did, did was the rest of the team ever like, oh, this guy's definitely going to get picked up by Haynes in the next year or so. Because it's because <laughs> I would have been able to predict that.
1: Especially his North Carolina days.
3: Oh yeah, and then they get into how he really bulked up before the ninety ninety one season. And I didn't mm. recognize until looking at the footage, oh yeah, he's like, kind of a different person between those two years. Yeah.
2: I didn't realize how much that athletes were sensationalized and the be like Mike advertising and, of course, how he changed fashion and sports and how we view athletes. I mean, I just, I am just, this docuseries was much needed.
1: The amount of Air Force Ones that I have in my home. Truly. (laughs) All thanks to him.
2: The quickness with which I buy a new white pair when I get one scuff on my original, like, it's, yeah.
1: And I remember the fervor in getting Jordans in the 90s yes, when they first dropped. It felt special, like having a new pair of Jordans and wearing them to school. Do
3: you know what I remember very specifically around when I was 10, so this would have been 96, 97, is the obsession with starter jackets, which has to be intrinsically related to the Bulls, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's something about entering a room with a jacket that's three sizes too large and very thin and picks up the wind or whatever. (laughs) Actually, is it possible the Bulls were the original The Emancipation of Mimi? (laughs) Uh.
2: Oh, the sound of those jackets make. It's, it should be illegal. Like, they are breaking some sound It's <laughs> so loud. Uh,
1: did you watch anything else, Aida?
2: I have to do something that is really embarrassing. I have to double back. And I talked so much shit on the show, Dave. I think it was a keep it that I did the one of the first weeks that it came out. And now I look like Boo Boo the Damn Fool because I watched the entire season and... It is amazing. Every episode is really good. They spend a lot of time talking about the side characters. They talk about black men with bipolar disorder, which I don't think has ever been done on TV, at least in this way. Plus, there's appearances from like Tierra Whack and Trippy Redd and Justin Bieber, which you guys know I'm not a fan of. He's just like a walking jewel pod. But <laughs> it was nice to see him on TV. So... Go back and watch Dave and enjoy that. And don't listen to me unless I've seen a whole season of TV. I'm going to stop.
3: Thank you for warning us. I will keep it in mind next time. Mm-hmm. I know where you're coming from.
1: Wow, you had a real come to Yahweh moment there. Oh, here we go. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, I really did. Love that for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lewis, what have you been into
3: this week? So this week I've consumed a lot of short content, but it wasn't Quibi. Mm-hmm. It was something which, to be fair, I believe was our sponsor at some point on this show. Mm. But... I really dove into it this week, and I'm talking about Masterclass. Love Masterclass. Love it. It, Which is, if you've seen the advertisements, you learn it's Annie Leibovitz teaching you about photography, or Steve Martin talking about comedy, and you, I guess, are supposed to come out a genius at the other end. Like, (laughs) the math doesn't really work out for me, but whatever. Anyway, it is weirdly among the most addictive content on the web, because you sort of feel like you're gaining something, and you feel like, oh, yes... Kelly Wurstler I'm learning lots about interior design now I can create a shell motif in my home and then you get up to do it and you're like I feel completely inferior and out of my tap <laughs> I, I can see that you can do it but I don't know that I can do it
2: my new favorite hobby is to listen to RuPaul's ones on identity and then shell out that information as if it's my own. That's what I've been, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. But yeah, there are some amazing ones on there. I've learned how to showrun by Shonda Rhimes. I will never be a showrunner, not anytime soon. But if I need to do it, I have the very basic skills.
1: <laughs> I love the contrast between Shonda Rhimes. I mean, Shonda Rhimes is, is kind of long. But um, you can do it however long you want to. So in comparison with Shonda Rhimes's. Aaron Sorkin's is like the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like, it just will not stop. Oh, he likes to talk? You don't say. Yeah, (laughs) And walk. Yeah. I need to watch uh, Natalie Portman's one on acting. (laughs) I just want to know what a acting
3: masterclass looks like. That did appear to me to be the most, perhaps, unintentionally funny one. Because there's one where she's like, she stages a room and she goes... Here I find out I'm being cheated on. And the only universe in which something like this would happen, acting-wise, is in the worst soap opera. So (laughs) it's like, thank you so much for teaching me how to do this, shall we say, um, kitschy job.
2: Yeah, there are two very funny ones that I really enjoy. There is one that David Sedaris does that is about humor writing, which he is just this very quirky type of comedy that I don't see embodied very much. He is very true comedy Mm -hmm. that is... um, Love David Sedaris. He has a funny one. Another funny one is Usher doing performance, which I th- I can only assume is him teaching you how to sweat on command. Like, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> what else could be going on there. But those are two to definitely check out, even if you're just perusing.
3: Usher's like, step one, have 14 abs.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I just finished David Sedaris's book, recent book, Calypso. Uh, so I should take oh, a look at that. Oh, I love that book. It was, you should, you really should. It was very moving, although I did not expect it to be as depressing as it was. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's about his um, mother's death uh, and his sister's suicide. And it also, midway through it, describes his last interaction with his sister, which is sort of mm-hmm. heartbreaking. But he, he never writes these things very saccharine. Um, they're always just sort of... Funny or matter of fact, which I think makes Mm -hmm. them somehow sadder
2: right when the book came out I was very fortunate because he came to my university to speak and I went mm-hmm. to go get my book signed and it was about a year and a half after my brother had passed and we told I talked to him about it we joked and then he put a little uh, tombstone when he signed the name with my brother's <laughs> name and I was like only David Sedaris would do something like this to my books so yeah <laughs> <That> it was <laughs> really cute really and funny I think he's that's a pattern of his that he does that for people when they talk about their dead relatives or fa- family members so it was cute and it made it was comforting in a very strange David Sedaris way so yeah.
3: Um, also, another strange thing I've done over the past week, can you believe it, this this will not surprise you at all, but my friends and I have decided to pick various Best Actress years in the Oscars and just watch all five of the nominees. Because um, there's like, if, when you look at old years, there are plenty of movies that have no legacy. Like, they had, you know, mm-hmm. some clout at the time, or they had some buzz, and then now... Just nobody talks about them. So, okay, the year I got was 1955. The person who won that year was Anna Magnani, an Italian actress who was very gritty and very real, particularly for the 50s and particularly for a female role uh, in The Rose Tattoo. Everybody should go see that. That's a performance that stands the test of time in a James Dean, Marlon Brando type way, okay? Mm -hmm. We love The Rose Tattoo. Tennessee. Precisely. The other four nominees that year, with the exception of Catherine Hepburn, who's in a movie where she just goes to Venice called Summertime are so the definition of what must have been Oscar bait at the time, they are hilarious. And they are. <laughs> Eleanor Parker an Interrupted Melody playing a woman, a world-famous singer, who then gets polio. You better believe there's a scene where she flings herself out of a wheelchair and crawls to knock over her record playing. You better believe <laughs> it. Another one is uh, this actress, Jennifer Jones, who was sort of like Elizabeth Taylor before Elizabeth Taylor came along, that kind of bone structure, dark hair, um, some austerity. She's in a movie called Love is a Many Splendored Thing where she plays a Eurasian woman. And let me tell you something, ain't nothing about Jennifer Jones is from China, but man, does she wear a few Chong Sams in this movie and repeatedly say over and over again, I am proud to be Eurasian. (laughs) (laughs) It is the yellow faciest Oscar nominee probably of the 50s. Uh, And then there was one more and it's Susan Hayward, who is the most histrionic but good overactor ever. Playing a star who then descends into alcoholism. And it's one of the first movies ever to feature an AA meeting. That and Comeback Little Sheba are two of the first movies to do that. So mm-hmm. if you want to see, if you want to get laughs, unintentional and intentional, <laughs> and find out something about what the fuck we found prestigious, I recommend looking at the best actress movies of
2: 1955.
1: Okay. I will. Hop on that.
2: I will consider that for you. <laughs> I will maybe consider that for you. <laughs> I've
1: se- I've seen the rose tattoo. I think I'm good. But <laughs> um, speaking of speaking of um, classic Hollywood and Yellowface in particular, I dove into Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that is a. Sort of reimagining of classic Hollywood set in the 1940s. It just came out on Netflix this past weekend. And it sort of reimagines what it would be like if black people, if queer people, if women were able to take control of their own destinies in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the performances in it a lot. There are performances from Patti LuPone and Holland Taylor that are fantastic. Uh, Joe Mantello is heartbreaking in this, and he's he's normally known as a director, but he has acted before. Uh, uh, Samara Weaving is actually really great, too, and so is Jeremy Pope, but largely, I thought the series was
3: kind of a mess. See, I can't decide what I think of this show. I've seen three episodes, and I like that it mingles real life and clearly like Ryan Murphy's obsession with old Hollywood stories, you know, just like the crazy parties at George Cukor's house uh, or, um, you know, uh, biographical notes about Rock Hudson, etc. And I think as this, the show goes along, you learn more that it's a revisionist take, etc. but it is weird watching them kind of fuck with biographical information about people like Rock Hudson is uh, dating a black screenwriter and then eventually turns down Noel Coward. Like, I can't really decide what the value in that kind of revisionist story is.
1: Mostly, Rock Hudson is also presented as an idiot Mm -hmm. in -hmm. this series, and I find it hard to believe that he was that dumb. I think that it's admirable what Ryan Murphy, uh, and of course, Janet Mock is a producer and director on the series as well. It's commendable what they wanted to do. Uh, There's a tweet from Janet Mock with a gif of anime Wong in the series. You know, it's like justice for anime Wong, you know, because um, historically she was uh, supposed to be playing in the good earth and then was not cast in the film because she was Asian and uh, because there were rules that white people and people of color could not be in romantic scenes together in film at that time and then she didn't win the oscar for that obviously because she wasn't in the film and so not to spoil things but she ends up getting an oscar that she would have earned if she had been in the film in the first place and the thing about hollywood is it's impossible to spoil it because you can tell Pretty early on through this wish fulfillment that there's going to be no suspense in this story. There's going to be no conflict because everything is sort of a foregone conclusion. The series is about what if all of these people were celebrated instead of having to hide in the closet or, you know, have to be in – Colored people
3: only sections of movie theaters. It's a weird premise for a TV show in that way because the idea is what if these people faced fewer conflicts? Yeah. So as a TV show, you're running into less just narrative plot interest in a way.
1: And unfortunately, you know, like with um, like the woman Camille, who is a black woman who ends up playing the lead role in this film named Meg, uh, there are scenes with Queen Latifah playing Hattie McDaniel. And I think it real does a real sort of disservice to the Hattie McDaniel story to show, oh, this is what happens when this girl gets all the things that Hattie McDaniel didn't get to have, you know, the respect in the industry, et cetera, when it took a really fucking long time for that to happen and, you know, put some respect on Halle Berry's name, you know. I commend wanting to do something that is positive, but ultimately... There are really no characters in it, you know? They're all sort of ideas or tropes, and unfortunately it just doesn't really come together in the end. And Ryan Murphy does this kind of storytelling. I mean, that is basically what pose is, but it also works in pose because each character in pose at least seems to be a fully realized character. And there are conflicts even if they're resolved at the end of every episode. There are conflicts that drive the characters and they sort of have wants and needs. And I feel like here every character is just sort of a thesis for, wouldn't it be great if Hollywood was like this? And... Unfortunately, the two black characters in the show really are the most underserved.
3: Yeah.
2: So is this overall a pass? Because I've been waiting to watch it, and I was excited to see Darren Chris do something that was more like Darren Chris and Glee. But um, is this a pass? Is this a no-go?
1: If you enjoy it while you're watching it, keep going. But I wouldn't encourage anyone to finish <laughs> it if you're not feeling it.
3: Okay. I would say I like it more than I am. Expected to based on initial reviews I read. I didn't know it would be so queer, actually, which is stupid. It's a Ryan Murphy show. But I think the problem with watching the show is you only get the edification of a revisionist history if you're sitting there with Wikipedia open with the real facts the entire time. Mm -hmm. Because the nature of the show is I can't really tell how real certain interactions would be or how fantastical certain ones are. And so the takeaway is sort of muddled if you're not. Immediately aware of the entire story of Anime Wong or the or like how Rock Hudson had to be in the class, you know, just Mm -hmm. there's lots of stuff you have to know in order for the show to really have the intended effect.
1: Yeah, unfortunately. And by the
3: way, oh my god, Vivian Lee in this show is a complete mess, which which gels with certain biographies we have of Vivian Lee, but it takes place in the late 40s and it's before she does a streetcar named Desire and she basically randomly at a party foretells her own demise due to mental illness in a tizzy, and it felt a little convenient to me. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, the actress looked great, but I do think sometimes the characters are living Wikipedia pages, and that gets a little yeah. annoying too.
1: On the flip side, I would say that what I really enjoyed on Netflix this past week was Never Have I Ever. Screaming. From Mindy Kaling Screaming. and Lang Fisher. I started it last week before we started to record and I really finished it this week and I thought it was amazing. It is one of my favorite new shows of the past year. It is a wonderful representation of a young Indian girl who is you know, just living her regular high school life and when her dad dies and she has a psychosomatic loss of her legs from dealing with the trauma (laughs) for a year and then once she gets out of the wheelchair, um, she's still dealing with that trauma while also trying to lose her virginity. I thought it was a nice spin on a classic tale that we've seen before, you know, and that's sort of how you can make diversity and like sort of... um, wish fulfillment happen in an interesting way. I'm just more into people doing the work now rather than trying to rewrite a history that has already existed.
2: Yes. I was so extremely impressed by the show. I mean, I wasn't sure what we were going to get. I was just excited that um, Indian girls, immigrant girls were going to get anything. Um, and I knew I was going to watch it regardless. But when I watched it, it gives me the same like poignant, funny, dark comedy that Fleabag has, like the genius of that, but spun for 15 to 18-year-olds, and then also appeals to adults. Um, and also the mother, who's played by porna Jagannathan, is one of the funniest actresses I think I've seen in a while, and I'm so excited to see what she what else she'll be in. She played a cheating, unfulfilled wife in the first season of Rami, so I recognized her, but uh, <laughs> more. I want more. I want more. We need more of her now. And
3: the lead actress on the show, Maitreyi Ramakrishnan, is... Uh, very funny. Uh, she sort of, I do think that Netflix protagonists, like to all the boys i loved before, et cetera, in these rom-com situations, do have a similarity where they're like confidently awkward. And I do feel like that gets a little homogenized over time. But I think she is really talented, often very funny. And I have to say, I like her academic rival on the show. Yes. <laughs> uh,
2: um,
3: this like mean white kid.
1: Ben, played by Jaron Lewinson. Uh, he Correct. They, yeah. he is he is great. I love their so conflict in the series. I would actually say that I appreciated how she was more than that confident awkward thing. I think that they really dove into the fact that she has anger issues, and that is fr- stemming from her unresolved trauma. She's truly a monster and a bitch <laughs> <Yeah>. to everyone <laughs> <Yeah>. around her, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and. It's told in a funny way and doesn't make her seem awful. You know, it makes her seem like a teenager who's dealing with some shit. Uh, And that was the
3: thrill of Fleabag, of course. Like, monstrousness is refreshing, you know. Um, Even, like, when you watch a show like The Wonder Years, which is supposed to be, like, maybe the most literal everyman protagonist uh, coming-of-age story... He is so awful certain times and Mm -hmm. at unpredictable moments. And so are we, so are people. So that's always thrilling.
1: Finally, I will say that one of the love interests, Darren Barnett, who plays the hot Jock Paxton, (laughs) is Valerie Cherish (laughs) hanging out with the teenagers.
3: (laughs) Oh yeah, he's like close to thirty.
1: He is so old. He's very hot, yeah. but compared to the other actors who are ranging from, you know, like 17 to 18, he looks ancient. It's very <laughs>
2: unfortunate because I was going to commend the casting because shows don't often do this well where they cast people who are supposed to be 16 as the right age. They did it so well for everyone except for him. It just looks so bad. I <laughs> And so, it's really ooh. funny
1: that they're watching Riverdale at one point in the series and remark on how... All the teenagers look on the show. Yes, when the teenagers do. who play on Riverdale are in their at least like early twenties or at, were like nineteen when the show was starting, not twenty nine.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's funny.
1: But it is a time honored tradition for teenagers to be played by adults. As yeah, I don't want it to stop. Seen. I find it eternally amusing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no one will beat. Andrea Zuckerman being 40 years old, practically, <laughs> on Beverly Hills 90210.
3: Bless, yes. Stocker Channing in Greece forever, yes. <laughs> 34, by the way. All right, when we're back, Andre Holland.
1: Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? We know you know him from Moonlight, but today we're excited to talk to Andre Holland, who is starring in The Eddie, an eight-episode limited series on Netflix, drops this week, and it's about a father jazz musician living in Paris. Hey. (laughs) What's up? What's up? Hey, hey, how y'all doing? Good, good. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Um... I would be remiss if we did not ask about this bookshelf behind you. You you all can't see this, but <laughs> yes. there is a huge bookshelf, like three, I think, with so many books on it. We love seeing people who have just are very well-read on the show.
3: Tim Gunn was initially our bookshelf king, but you have actually just supplanted him. In a hostile fashion,
2: (laughs) I met -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. an attack.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't want to (laughs) supplant Tim, man.
1: (laughs) Uh, Is it it like novels, plays? Because you do a lot of theater as well.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, There's some plays up there. There, uh, A lot of nonfiction. Not as many novels, but uh, a lot of... Man, what am I seeing? I'm seeing some Hilton Owls, Tressie McMillan-Cottom, Baldwin, of course. Mm. You know, a bunch of different stuff up there. Yeah. And it's it's been my lifeline during this pandemic. I can imagine. Yeah.
2: Good, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, of course, loved you in Moonlight, which so many people know you from. Um, and it was exciting to now see you working with Damien Chazelle in this Netflix series, The Eddie, which comes out this friday can you tell us a bit about what it was like working with damien i think we were just talking about him the other week too just aida
0: had watched yeah i was just
2: raving about whiplash
0: Mm. yeah it's dope it's um and thank y'all for having me on too taking the time to talk with me about the project so i met damien back when we were doing moonlight when we were doing press for moonlight uh, obviously, La La Land and Moonlight were sort of on the same path. Oh, they were oh, up were against they? each oh, other. <laughs> surprise, right. surprise, oh, surprise. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so, I got just a sidebar. It's so funny when people talk about Moonlight like in that way because. <laughs> I always think back to when we made it for like, you know, no money. And in like 22 days, I thought, okay, my, my parents will see it and my friends will see it. But I never imagined that like you guys would see it or that the world would see it. So yeah. it still shocks me when people are like, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, but so anyway, we met during that time. I had seen Whiplash, you know, like you had and really enjoyed it. And so I, you know, I think it was in Toronto. I pulled him aside of a party and I was like, man, you know, I'd love to work with you someday. If we can find something that, that uh, is suitable is suitable. And then um, this thing came along. We met in LA, had a lunch together, talked about it, talked about jazz, talked about culture, talked about a lot of different things, and, and realized that we had a lot in common. And so it uh, it actually was a, it was a really good experience working with him.
3: When I think about Damien Chazelle, I think specifically in Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man. I mean you're so immersed not just in uh, the visual atmosphere of it and music when when it exists in these things but just sonically I just feel I just feel like you're fully enveloped in in what's going on it really almost feels like a VR headset a lot of the time so when you're filming a show like this which is obviously super musical are you Watching like cameras do crazy things around you at all times, mm. does it feel really shocking and overly technical, and is it hard to work in that atmosphere? It's
0: funny you say that going into it, I expected that it would be really technical, but it was actually the opposite. Damien, you know he directed the first two episodes, and all the music of course is recorded well, not of course, but in this case, all the music is recorded live, so that presented a some technical challenges from you know in the sound department but Damien was so responsive to what we as actors were doing. So the camera, you would see him and the DP just kind of running around, chasing the action, whatever was going down. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't super well orchestrated. Mm. Um, I mean, it was orchestrated, but, but it wasn't like so precise that we didn't have freedom to, uh, to really live. You know what I mean? So that, that was exciting to see him just react in real time to whatever it is that we were doing.
2: You are really one of those actors that like you pulled out a trumpet and started playing and I wasn't surprised and then you pulled out French language and I was like oh yeah he definitely speaks French that makes sense you know like you were probably born with that capability I I I was just very impressed and then I took to the end of my first episode of The Eddie I was like oh he did so many things <laughs> in that in that show that most actors wouldn't be able to do. Um, could you talk a little bit about your musicianship and your ability to speak French? Like, where did these come from and when? Wow,
0: that's dope. Thank you. I'm glad you I'm glad you. You felt that way about it. Thank you. Um, no
2: problem. Thank you. Thank you. So,
0: the, the musician part, of the music part of it was the hardest because I, you know, I don't really play any instruments. I play a bit of guitar and a, a little bit of piano, which I learned many, many years ago, but it's not something that I do every day. So just getting into that was really difficult. I had, I think two or three different piano teachers and um, any moment that we weren't on set shooting, I was in the trailer practicing the piano or back at home practicing the piano. Um, So that was the hardest part. And then to do that on stage with world-class musicians in front of a live audience Mm. is like a whole nother level of of nerves. But um, So that was challenging the French. I studied when I was in high school and then I, I lived in France for a short time working with this theater company out there that I really love. Uh, and they you know it's all it's all in French of course and so that gave me an opportunity to bone up on my French and then I've taken classes throughout the years just for my own pleasure to try and get better and better Uh, so I'm I'm not fluent in French but I understand quite a lot of it and hopefully soon I will I will be fluent but I'm glad you dug it
2: yeah
0: (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) it was so interesting seeing the story you know about a black man and jazz in paris weirdly enough i had just watched paris blues the previous night oh, uh i love that movie and so i was like i was already in the zone um of that and well speaking of that movie you know it has this whole conversation between diane carroll sydney portier about whether or not black people should you know be leaving the country you know, to pursue their art and whether or not they should be back here in America. And you know, I feel like the times we're living in now, that is a very prescient question. And I was just wondering, you know, like what do you think about doing art in America versus back when you were in Paris and is, is that somewhere you would want to go back to or do you feel like it's very important to be doing work here now?
0: Oh man, that's a good question. And I'm so glad you I'm so glad you watched that film and liked it. That's one of my favorite films, Paris mm-hmm. Blues. And and ironically, when Damien and I sat down the first time when we started talking about references, that was one of the first ones that came up and he dug it a lot too. So uh I'm I'm glad you and Ava Duvernay actually introduced me to that film many years ago, so shouts to her. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, for me, it's a big question. One of my teachers in school used to say, We make theater for our friends and our family. And I never I didn't really understand what that meant. Because at the time I thought, no, no, we make it for the audience, for the people, for you know, whoever's coming and needs it. But the older I get, the more I realize that, for me anyway, the art that I make is very much about my community. So uh, growing up in Alabama, um, I grew up in a place where we didn't really have a lot of access to arts, uh, either arts education or just arts in general. So everything that I do, I want to speak to that community in some way. So for me, I don't think it would serve me at this point in my life to go abroad, live abroad, and and make art there if it takes me away from my people. You know what I mean? The the Mm -hmm. older I get, the more and more I feel myself drawn to going back home to Alabama and and doing work there. My family and I just, um, a couple of years ago, bought this old movie theater, which is called the Lincoln Theater. It was the only theater in, in the town I grew up in. Uh, it was the one that you know black people were allowed to go to. My parents went on dates there. So many people know the place and love the place, but it's been abandoned for probably thirty or forty years now, maybe even more than that. And so we bought it, and our hope is that we're going to restore it, and then build it as a sort of uh, community arts organization—a place where people, young people, can come and, and and learn a bit and try you know try some things on, and also a place where we can we can provide arts to people in that community. So. For me, it's all about community, and I don't i don't feel like living abroad or, or being far away would, would necessarily serve me right now. Mm-hmm.
3: I, just, I have to ask about just the legacy of Moonlight and how that movie hangs with you in your life. I mean, I feel like I, – I, I mean, let's just take a look at the history of the Oscars. I'm pretty sure it's still the only black queer one, for example. I don't remember that storyline in The French Connection or whatever, Patton, you know, et cetera. So it just – <laughs> historically it has this place that there's no comparison. Do you feel you have that movie with you always like that it's like an indelible part of, you know, your artistic legacy and just what do you think of that movie looking back now a few years later?
0: In some ways I feel like I'm only now, you know, 4 or 5 years after it am I able to really process what what went down and like how important that movie was to people when it happened. It, it all happens so fast, you know, I mean, we, we made it. And then all of a sudden we were on like a press tour and people are talking about it and, you know, all the way up until the Oscars, even the night of the Oscars still feels like a bit of a blur, you know what I mean? But now, yeah, it still is with me. I would say like probably every day or like every other day when we're not in, you know, quarantine, uh, people come up to me and say, man, I, you know, I really like Moonlight. It, it really spoke to me. This is what it meant to me or it helped me have this conversation with my family that I've been wanting to have and needing to have, or, I mean, so many different things. So I feel like it's, I'm so proud of the legacy of the film and I'm so proud to be part of it. Yeah. I don't know if, I hope it's always with me. You know what I mean? I hope it's always like a touchstone that people can, can point to. And it definitely set the bar for my career in a way. Like I think now that, now that I've experienced that, not only in terms of having like having to be a film that was like enjoyed by many and like, won some awards not that that's that important but like it kind of is in certain ways but just to be a part of something that really spoke to people in that way i think that now i feel like everything i want everything i do to be at that level you know which is tough but uh it's worth it's worth aspiring for i think i mean
1: even before that you were in the nick so i mean you know the, the, the 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 level the level has been there (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, well thank you, bro. Thank you. I appreciate it. I love that one too. That was so dope. We had such a good time.
2: Also, I mean it was right. a while ago, but I did watch All of Friends with Benefits. Oh,
0: so that Lord. was a show. That <laughs> 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 don't
2: do that. Oh, when you had the, the high top fade, come on. Don't do, I love that show.
0: Oh my that was gosh. A good show. That is a throwback. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was a
2: while a while ago. Well, my favorite thing about the th- the thing, the projects that you're usually attached to is your character in a way I never know how to figure that Character out, like Mm -hmm. you know, even Kevin and Moonlight. I'm like, do I like you? Are you playing this little boy, like you know? And then even in the Eddie, I don't know if I like you. Like, and I don't, you you don't know if you like that character. And I mean, it's also, I'm a huge Amanda fan. So I was like, what's going on here? Is he a good dad? Oh yes, we must discuss her. We do. (laughs) But I want to ask you, how do you locate, other than reading, you know, being very aware of all of the scripts and what's going on in the season arc, how do you locate a character like that? And how do you stylize roles for yourself when you're trying to like hold things back and give whatever you're trying to give to the audience?
0: Yeah, man, y'all had some dope questions. Um, When I, okay, I'll say this. When I first read the script, I didn't like Elliot either. Mm -hmm. I read it and I was like, man, I, I, I can't really get behind this dude. I don't understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, why he's behaving this way, you know. And we ended up, you know, I had a bunch of conversations with Jack, the writer and Damien and everybody because I I felt pretty strongly that we needed to to make some changes, you know. And one of those changes was for that reason because it it felt too far in one direction. And I wanted it to kind of live in this gray area where you don't really know whether you room for the dude or not. For me, in terms of locating him, it was about trying to figure out what it is that he's trying to do in his life and then what it is, that's in the way of that. So, you know, I believe that he wants to have a relationship with the He wants to be a better father. He wants to be a a, a well-respected musician who, you know, makes good art. Um, he wants to be in community with other people. Now, what's in the way of that for me was was grief. He's a man who we come to find out has lost a child, you know, some years before. He's been isolated from his community for for quite some time. And I think he's, he's gotten himself caught in that grief cycle and he can't get out of it. So the self-loathing, the... The bouts, the like bursts of anger, the, you know, being withdrawn, all of that stuff for me is like about a, a, like a bit of mental illness in a way. Right. Like it, it's it's a it's a he's stuck. But what I wanted was that, that we would feel there were moments uh, in the script, in the story where we saw him trying to move his life forward. We saw him trying to reach out to his daughter, trying to be a better father, trying to understand other people. It's just that he doesn't have he doesn't have the tools available to himself to, you know, to do it at the, in the right way. And for me, that like that struggle, trying to understand that, is very much something that I was going through myself at that time, trying to forgive myself for some things, some some decisions, some mistakes that I made in my life, right? Trying to tolerate myself, trying to be gentle with myself, and also allowing myself to feel the things that I needed to feel. So. All of that stuff was going on for me and going on for Elliot, and so it was really important to me, especially as he's a black man, that we not present him as just an angry, out of control, bad father. That like he's a dude mm-hmm. who's trying to do better, you know. Um, he's a human being, so that, that's that's kind of how I started, and then yeah, and then Amanda helped because she's such a dope actress. She uh, had a lot to say about it. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. Can we talk about is it frightening to work with like? Young prodigy actors. Just why are young people (laughs) often so good at acting? It's like a scary situation for me. I will never forget watching The Hate You Give because, first of all, just the story jumps from romance to violent trauma and back really quickly, and she just has to process a lot and give us a lot as a as a character in that movie. But here, too, I'm watching her again. I'm like, and now you have the nerve to get better. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there's, uh, there's something frightening about somebody who has that much power at a young age. What was it like working with her in scenes?
0: It was wonderful. She's fantastic. You know, we a lot of the scenes that we did together, we improvised because she had so many ideas about who her character was and I had ideas. And so we um, – and Damien trusted us. So a lot of times he'd say, all right, I know the script says this, but what do y'all think this might be? What might it feel like? Mm. And so we spent a lot of time just kind of going back and forth. And she's – like you said, she's, she's a prodigy, I mean, she's so talented, so smart, um, so giving. She's just a she's 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 a G. That's all I can say about it. And I think she'll she'll go as far in this business as she wants to go.
3: I'm almost a little disappointed that Damien Chazelle isn't like J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. I would prefer <laughs> he say like, actually, it has to be at my tempo all the time. That would yeah. sort of be rad. <laughs> but I guess I'm happy you weren't, you know, devastated. Yeah. By. Now, now when
0: it, now when it came to the music, let's be clear, like that he gave us the leeway as actors. But when it came to music, it was a little bit different. You know, like the mm-hmm. he wanted the camera and the all of that all of that stuff had to work together. You know. And there were times when I was like, "I'm glad I'm not a musician because I'm not sure I can can uh, get that right." But yeah,
1: jumping back even into the Moonlight narrative that so many people know, I feel like so much of us know a lot about Barry Jenkins, you know, just because of the way that Moonlight was sort of that underdog story during the Oscar season. Uh, can you tell us a bit about just interacting with Damien as? A person on set maybe initially when you met him too and like everything he does is about like the music the tempo jazz like is he just constantly talking about music all the time
0: (laughs) not really not with me i mean we talked a lot about film and and some about theater and and you know about all kinds of things i think he's a guy who's interested in a lot of different kinds of, of stuff you know but for me he was surprisingly relaxed i thought that he would be a bit a bit more prescriptive about things, but he was like, yeah, let's just try it. Let's see what happens. And if anybody had a question or had a different idea, he's like, great, that and this, you know? Yeah, I I mean, I can't say enough about him. He invited us out a bunch. We went to hear some music together as a cast, which was really helpful. Yeah, I can't say, he's he's dope. We we really enjoyed it.
3: And by the way, um, before Moonlight, you were also in Selma. If you ever Mm. want to learn a ton about movies in about seven minutes, Any interview with Ava DuVernay, this woman cannot stop name dropping films. She has seen so much stuff; it's very, very intimidating. One of those like top one percent knowers of movies. Did you gain a lot of uh, just appreciation of film through her?
0: Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I like I said before, she put me onto Paris Blues and to a book, some other several mm-hmm. other you know sort of classic black films. But I think more than that, I learned or what I gained from her was was an understanding of how to run a set and how to really treat people. Um, I remember when we first did Selma. I think it was maybe the first week of shooting or something like that. Uh, there was a day when I had a pretty big scene and one that I had been preparing for and was a bit nervous about. And and I just so happened to get a cold, you know, the day before. So I woke up, you know, feeling terrible, and I went to set anyway, thinking, all right, we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. And when I arrived, the PA saw me and she said, Are "You all right?" And I said, yeah, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just gonna get a cup of tea. I'll be in the trailer. Just let me know when y'all ready." So I went and laid down, and then. Probably about 15 minutes later, there was a knock on the door and it was Ava. And I didn't really know her that well at that point. We only met a couple of times. And she came in and she was like, Brother, I heard you were sick.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I said, Yeah, I'm sick, but I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all right. We're going to make it happen. She was like, No, no. You just lay down, drink your tea, take care of yourself. I've called the doctor. The doctor's going to come and check on you. And we're going to move your big scene till the end of the day so that you have a bit more time to rest. And I was like, Ava. I'm I'm good like you don't have to do all of this for me (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm so good she was like no no it's already done it's gonna be fine just take care of yourself brother and I thought man like what a generous generous person you know to do that for me and she was like that with everybody so by the end of the shoot any person on that set would run through a wall for Ava you know she just empowers people in that way that's to me that's her magic.
2: We are I think I already brought it up when I asked you about this character and him being like a flawed black man for the reasons that you talked about. But and this will probably be the case for any role that you do because you are a black man, but when you go home after shooting the Eddie or shooting Moonlight does that stay with you like does the looming kind of having to consider your race and having to consider what it means for that uh, character i'm sure not so much in like friends with benefits i bet you weren't thinking about it as much in that show but like how can you talk about the contrast of roles like that that are more demanding on your psyche
0: yeah in a way though to be honest like all roles feel like that to me like i'm always considering even with some of my friends with benefits i'm like okay well i'm clearly like the black friend Mm -hmm. like the one black guy in a group and what am i doing let me make sure he's not just out here you know I, I mean that character was sleeping around right and i was like well let's not go too far in that direction it's always this balancing act of like who is this character and like what does it mean for me to be inhabiting this character you know and like sometimes i, I used to get angry about it a bit and feel like i just want to be an actor and i just want to like get out and, and and like do my job and like be good at it but actually now I consider it to be really a gift that I get to consider these things more deeply, you mm-hmm. know? Um, it teaches me a lot more, and, and at the end of the day, I feel a lot better about the projects. Like, for example, one of the things I'm proudest of about the Eddie, regardless of how people receive it or what they think about it, one of the things I'm most proud of is that when I first read the character, there were things that I thought were somewhat problematic uh, or potentially problematic, and that and that we as a company, as a group, were able to discuss those things and try to solve them, you know, in a, in a, in a mostly peaceful way. And where we ended up, it it may not be the perfect place, but it certainly is a better place than where we started out, you know? And so I think, um, that spirit of collaboration is is really important to me and, and probably one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of in my career, being able to collaborate.
1: Great. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Andre, for being here with us. No
0: problem. Thank y'all. I appreciate it. Yeah, I really thanks for coming on. enjoyed the talk and y'all stay safe Yeah. and, um, yeah, wear your mask and all that stuff, and we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah, you too. Thank you for your solemn sense of yeah. wisdom.
3: Yes, I, I really am pacified in my chair. Oh here. It's man, really <laughs> and the soothing,
2: the soothing tonality of voice—it's unfair. <laughs> 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 so, uh, thank
0: you. <laughs> y'all so sweet. Thank y'all very much. Y'all take good care. Thank you. All right.
1: On Monday, the Pulitzer Committee announced its 2020 Pulitzer Prize recipients. This comes two weeks after the committee was originally slated to announce the winners at their annual luncheon. The event obviously derailed by COVID-19 and is postponed indefinitely. However, there were some exciting winners in the bunch, and I think it made it all worth it doing it. As an online stream. Yeah. The standouts, obviously, were, it is a
3: very black year for the Pulitzers.
2: We swept up.
3: Way more so than usual. It's like a a sort of landmark year for black writers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I
1: think one of our first Keep It episodes, by the way, was uh, when
3: Kendrick won. The pullets. Wow. Oh, that's right. And I, had, I had talked about how when Winton Marsalis won, people are like, "Well, this is for sellouts now." <laughs> it's like, that's what we thought about. That's what we thought about Winton oh Marsalis God. once upon a time.
1: <laughs>
3: and now, what's
1: changed for Kendrick since then? No one thinks of him in that way now. You know? <laughs> yeah. <think it's>, yeah. <laughs> if if anything, it um. It elevated him a bit, you know, to be to maybe more like heady niggas to be like, oh, my God, we listen to Kendrick Lamar, that Pulitzer winner. That
2: might be true. The like the jazz kids yeah. are like, I guess, I guess now damn is a good album. But uh, yeah, I love Pulitzer Prizes. For me, this is like Oscars for bitches who like to read. Like this is really <laughs> like this is where I thrive. Uh, I'm very I'm also very happy that they came together and did it and did the live stream because, I mean, I know that it, it wouldn't have gone Uh, missed but i'm excited to see how emmys ends up going oscars if they're gonna like follow suit and do this exact same thing if we're gonna get like a zemmies or a oscars this is zoom (laughs) emmys zoom oscars
1: Um, the stream was good you know they had graphics and people were following along on social media anyway so they got a good reaction
2: yeah And shout out Jericho Brown for winning in the poetry section for his book Tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amazing. Jericho Brown is one of my favorite poets and not only like his writing and his capability. He is a great reader, which rarely happens at the same time as being an amazing poet. He writes a lot about like black resilience and queer resilience and... It's a, per- it's a perfect time to pick up his book if you haven't read it and are interested in poetry. So Jericho Brown.
1: Well, I'm mostly into flowetry, but I will pick up <laughs> Jericho Brown. Whoa, well, take me about... back with flowetry,
2: <laughs> shit. Yeah. yeah. I also think that you can say yes to Jericho Brown. So there we go. <laughs> all you got to do. It's all you got to do. I'll make
1: sure I pick that up. Uh, it sounds exactly like something I'd want to read. Mm-hmm. And speaking of reading, last night... I picked up my copy of Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, who won the Pulitzer back to back, by the way. He won People don't do fiction. That. No, the first back to back winner, uh, he won for Nickel Boys. <laughs> and last time, he won for Underground Railroad. Yes. So he's really, really killing it. He's
2: the first person of <laughs> color to win that. And that's like a, along with names like John Updike and. Um, he's the fourth
1: novelist to win twice. The first black author to win twice, and yes. the first period to win for consecutive novels.
2: A, sp- a man full of dreads, a head full of dreads, and that is just <laughs> beautiful. Absolutely, be- the Nickel Boys is a book that I f- read f- beginning to end, did not put it down. I think I like looked up and the sun was rising, and I looked down and the sun was setting, and I was closing the book. Like it is such a beautiful story. Um, I'm glad you got to read it, Ira, and Underground Railroad. Is It's funny because we were just talking about the ho- Hollywood, the show where they kind of do this revisionist history mm-hmm. of what it meant to be uh, someone in Hollywood at that time. And Underground Railroad is a great allegorical book about what if the Underground Railroad was actually physicalized and these slaves mm-hmm. were escaping on trains that were happening underground. So it follows this story of this uh, woman who's enslaved. Her name is Cora, and she's from Georgia. It's just a beautiful story about the atrocities of slavery done in a very unique way. So... People are gonna study Colson Whitehead the way they study Faulkner. Like <laughs> I can't. I wish I would be around to see that a uh, hundred years from now. But I can't wait because he's such an amazing novelist.
1: Yeah, and The Nickel Boys is about the abuse of black boys at a juvenile reform school in Florida. And I just want to say that from this and Underground Railroad, he does trauma and horror so beautifully. <laughs> Yeah. If, if if there's a way to say that it's just that it is never trauma porn mm-hmm. you're reading the Nickel boys and I didn't feel like fear while reading it you know I didn't feel like oh my god I don't want to turn the page because there are horrible atrocities happening on each page um I think that the way that he writes about it leaves a lot to the imagination but also it it just matter of factly deals with the Abuse that people suffer, and then it moves on. Yeah, and um, this book, I had weirdly enough received a press copy like last year, and I never got around to reading it. And last night, when it won, uh, I picked it up, and I couldn't put it down. I finished the entire novel. Mm-hmm. His writing is just so beautiful. And before you even get to the Nickel Academy, you know, you 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 meet Elwood the protagonist and it's it's such a beautiful story of a black child growing up in the south the last gasps of Jim Crow and all of the promise in the world that you would want for yourself that you would want for any other black person in your life and knowing that it's all going to be stripped away from him and it all happens because he hitchhikes To college, where he's supposed to be taking college classes, and the person he hitchhikes from gets pulled over because it's a stolen car.
2: Mm -hmm. So you see that, like in with good intentions, still come bad consequences, especially for black people. And he's just a very good writer. He writes in a way also that is almost clinical, but as a device to show you how detached our black people have become to their trauma and. Uh, I I I found that just genius. He's amazing, and actually, Underground Railroad. It's funny because we had Andre is being adapted for TV with Barry Barry Jenkins. Jenkins. Yeah, Yeah. so we're gonna get. Can't wait for the girls to have something a little fun. Yeah, I mean (laughs) something to
1: (laughs) yeah a little something fun for (laughs) quarantine. Um, Yeah. Now you mentioned Falk there too, but this the debate in nickel boys is between him and his friend who's also in the juvenile center with him turner and turner is more of a malcolm x sort of vibe you know if, if there's if there's the dr king versus malcolm x the queen series, and slim uh, of it
2: all right <laughs>
1: how to deal with um oppression as black people Uh, it reminded me a lot too of Lorraine Hansberry's LeBlanc's which I read Mm -hmm. after Jeremy O'Harris brought it up to us um, diving into her other non Raisin in the Sun works and a lot of her books are about those two dueling ideas in black people about whether or not you're going to do things the right way or whether or not you're going to fuck things up a bit to get what you want and It is it's thoughtful, it's beautiful, and uh it is it is a page turner, and truly it is only two hundred and like um twenty something pages, and I started at eight p m last night and finished so
2: yes, uh, and
3: speaking by the way of black playwrights Lor- Lorraine Hansberry, we added another one to the pantheon of uh Black Pulitzer Prize and drama uh recipients. I know you saw a strange loop I did which uh is written by Michael R Jackson and I I was of course attracted to it initially not just because it sounded good but because it's based off a theoretical concept but also a Liz Fair song and there's a talk of Liz Fair obviously you guys know I'm obsessed with Liz Fair but <laughs> I have to say the Pulitzer Prize for Drama has a pretty rad History of Honoring Black Playwrights. Like, obviously, August Wilson won a couple of times. You had Susan Laurie Parks for uh, Top Dog, Underdog in the early 2000s. Two for Lynn Nottage. I saw it ruined at the Geffen about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Awards are rarely like this. It's actually a good guidepost to go back and look at uh, awesome works, particularly by uh, uh, black creators.
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel... very sad that I didn't get a chance to see A Strange Loop. I found clips of Larry Owens singing his ass off online, so that was beautiful. <laughs> but other than that... um That
3: man is one of a kind. I saw the video he made when uh, the Pulitzer was handed out, and I was almost worried for him. Like That was a, a level of emotion. I wasn't ready to handle it about 9.35 in the morning.
2: <laughs> electrifying. He's an electrifying human.
3: I love
1: Larry. He is such a kind and heartwarming soul and Mm -hmm. truly the last time i saw him was in new york i was with a friend i think i was with matt whitaker um our mutual friend uh lewis and we were going to see a play and (laughs) ran into larry just in Times square and (laughs) there was there was this weird maybe asian man um in a MAGA hat who just turned to us and started staring at us, and the three of us just laughed in his face and kept <laughs> walking. <laughs> he was trying to rile people up in the middle of Times Square, and we were like, "Girl, what?" <laughs> we we're like, we "We're like, they don't love you." Yeah, take the hat off. He's like, "That was
2: a <laughs> Couple of gays congregating. Ew. Like, that's- <laughs> but yeah, love him, and you know I went down a hole this morning looking at videos of Nicole Hannah Jones speaking about her project that won for the New York Times or 1619 project. Wow, this woman. Wow, this woman. First of all, she's a badass. I love her so much. And like from the moment that came out, that magazine came out, I was like, oh, she's gonna get a pulitzer for this. There's no way. There's just absolutely no way. It was so moving and transformative and even changed my understanding of slavery and someone who like prides himself on knowing what the hell was going on. She's still she still changed everything. So very proud of her for what she did and her work.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I really did enjoy the 1619 Project. And mm-hmm. what I especially loved about it winning is uh, that Keebler Elf Ben Shapiro was so- They're so mad. They're so mad. About it. He was so <laughs> pressed, so mad. <laughs> the The conservative racist spear of the internet who- hates the 1619 Project because they think that talking about how evil slavery was and how America was founded on slavery and anti-black racism is somehow destroying America's values. Yeah, they're so stupid. (laughs) It it already happened, bitch. It already happened. And the best part about him tweeting, I'm so upset about this, is that he then followed it with, an Amazon link to his book. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, "Go, go read my book so you can see why this is trash. Sir no one's buying your book
2: why do they get so mad when we tell them this country is fundamentally hypocritical it is just a basic it's like it's fact it's knowledge the sky is blue this country sucks like there's so many basic things and you know what there's at least a couple wins here her stuff 1619 project is being taught in schools like it's curriculum now Mm -hmm. um not just at hbcus at a lot of different schools and even elementary schools and middle schools so hopefully those kids can get real knowledge at the at the beginning of their lives Mm -hmm. and the project is black editors and black designers, everyone who worked on it, it's a very, very black project. So mm-hmm. shout out to her for everything that she did. That's it's it's an amazing piece of journalism.
3: Yeah. But by the way, can I just say it talking about um, white people having somewhat pressed reactions? <laughs> you guys need to stop telling me that my Twitter Avi looks like Ben Shapiro. I do not want to hear it. I can't help it. I can't help who that that I have a menacing, that? <laughs> I can't I can't help that I have menacing eyebrows. It doesn't mean I'm a <laughs> menacing
2: person. Hurt you? Who did this? A
3: lot Look of Twitter guys—they they don't stop, and you guys don't stop them. I'm just—I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very upsetting. I, I have never—I have never seen this,
1: Lewis. I would Aww. defend you from that. Okay. Good. Oh. At the very least, I would defend you from I that. I
2: can't wait to pick, stitch your photo and Ben Shapiro <laughs> and post it on Twitter tonight. <laughs> I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I'm Why gonna, would I uh, give
3: <laughs> Trolio Iglesias over here <laughs> the, the license to do what she wants with me?
1: Bro. I
2: can't wait to push this narrative. I can't wait.
1: Uh, uh, but lastly, <laughs> though, like Iglesias. speaking of people studying the 1619 Project, like I really hope that this means that Schools will start studying a strange loop, you know, just a Pulitzer Prize win for a black gay playwright is just phenomenal. And uh, I know that the Pulitzer adds weight to you know what we think is important, especially in academia and Mm -hmm. as a black theater kid growing up like if I had had something like A Strange Loop as Pulitzer winner that would have been so who
2: knows um
1: just so transformative for me you know as an artist as a kid you know and um I'm, I'm really glad that that and like I said like Lynn Nottage you know and um other f- sweat winning in 2017, you know, even like Hamilton winning mm-hmm. in 2016, you know, um, which they and- make
2: fun of in a strange loop, which I love. I know, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> and they uh, make very- fun of Tyler Perry so much. Uh- <laughs> That's the strangest loop. Yeah. Um, love- speaking of your. Oscar looks like... I th- I think it would be great, actually, to go back and read not just the winners of any particular year of uh, the Pulitzer for Drama, but also read the finalists, too. You know, like the year-next-to-normal one, like Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo by Rajiv Joseph. I saw that on Broadway, and I think, like, revisiting those would be a great read. And lastly, Rajiv Joseph and Michael R. Jackson, if you're playing at home, the... Keep It drinking game. Michael R. Jackson
3: has his degree from where? (laughs) Oh, God. Your fucking college? The Tisch School of the Arts. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. You guys can stop this with your letters. You have to send them to Crooked, and then he'll stop it.
1: (laughs) All right. When we're back, it's time to spin the Keep It wheel. What if we make Keep It a wheel?
2: For what? What would be the point of that, Ira?
1: I don't know. Just stole it. I just like stealing things from John Lovett
2: oh um, yeah, yeah I guess yeah. We and can also do it's like real.
3: I'm the game show fan and he gets to have the like Merv Griffin look no unbelievable <laughs> not uh, unacceptable shut it
2: down Lewis shut it down
1: yeah and he's been doing basically every episode with Ronan now that they're at home it's just it's, it's truly stacking the
3: deck against us Christopher Knight and Adrian Curry yeah, I mean,
2: <laughs> yeah it's disgusting it's insider trading I don't like it it needs to be shut down as well
1: And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As always, it is Keep It. Mm. Let's go ahead and spin that Keep It wheel.
2: At first, I was worried there was nothing to complain about because like, life feels like this constant ailment all the time. Which maybe is a bad word to use since we're in a pandemic. <laughs> but um, then, then Parks and Rec decided to do an episode from home. So here I am um pissed off and keep it to that so I feel bad I feel a little bad critiquing it because they were just trying to uplift and you know find us any solidarity during this time but they gave us this dry ass underproduced segment and you know they could have just let Amy Poehler and Aubrey Plaza be awkward and talk to one another and I would have watched that and I would have enjoyed it but they didn't they did this very contrived Conversation where all of the cast is calling one another through this phone tree. Mind you, the show has ended five years ago, so there's really no reason for them to be talking anymore. And if they were, they would be like in a Slack chat, you know, if we're being realistic. So it just felt very contrived. I could do without the social d- distancing jokes that we all made like day three of the pandemic, the like. Oh, I was born social distancing. It's day 50. None of you are happy anymore. I don't care if you're introverted. This is not easy for anyone. I feel I'm at like Tim Robbins levels of confinement. <laughs> I'm going to bust a wall. <laughs> so I'm just, what? I'm very frustrated with the whole thing. Shashank, yeah. shashank, 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 I, I No, shashank. I knew it. Yeah. It's awkward i wish they hadn't done it and also the show ended with a lot of people being together still so adam scott was with amy poehler aubrey plaza was with chris pratt who looks nothing like he did when the show ended so it feel it's just very uncomfortable and the way they have to film it is that like oh i'm in the other room because the kids are playing in this room and i can't no we're all in different houses you guys are actors this makes no fucking sense why did you do this um there's highlights though retta was really funny Retta was good. Uh, She really stunted on all of us. She had all of her low tops and sensible shoes out in her walk-in closet. (laughs) So we appreciate that. Ben Schwartz was funny. That was it, though. And the show is known for having this chemistry that never falls flat. But then everything about the special felt off. And don't even let me get into the Aziz Ansari of all this. So... He was there being awkward and uncomfortable. Nobody really wanted to see it. Nobody wanted to have him there. And that's it. Parks and Rec, you didn't do anything for us. Um, I have a bad taste in my mouth about the show now. So keep it.
3: That show, unfortunately, was always too heartwarming to me by half. Like, I don't relate to the general idea that I'm working with a group of people. And at the end of the day, somehow we found a kind of mushy, marshmallowy connection at the end of it all. That has never happened to me. I have a secret rage going at all times. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. you need to tap into that. That's more interesting to me. Yeah, um,
2: you hate us. Like, that. we just create a rapport for the podcast. <laughs> I was referring to other workplaces, you <laughs> not
3: you, but
1: yes. <laughs> I think the show has a sort of, you know, bygone Obama-era optimism um, and white liberalism to it, which is it's, it's comforting. Um, I, I, weirdly enough, did not finish Parks and Recreation, unfortunately.
2: Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: I I didn't see the last two seasons.
2: There's some shade when you say the whole name out instead of just Parks and Rec. (laughs) When you say Parks and Recreation. I don't know why. I'm just saying the title. (laughs) (laughs) That little show they did, Parks and Recreation. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Like a parent calling it by its middle name too. (laughs) Parks and
2: Recreation? (laughs) Come downstairs.
1: (laughs) Come downstairs and eat this breakfast. Parks and (laughs) recreation. Parks Alexander Recreation.
2: (laughs) Parks Parks Ampersand. Parks Ampersand recreation. (laughs) You're done. You're done. But yeah.
1: Well, I'm sorry that you were disappointed. It's
2: okay. I I shouldn't trust mockumentary shows to do anything successful. Look at Kenya. So I'm done. What about you, boys? Lewis, what's your keep it?
3: Um, well, it's that time of the month again, which means it's time for me to aim my keep it at Jeopardy. Uh, two keep it's that are Jeopardy related this week. They came out almost f- a full seven days ago. I'm sorry we record on Tuesdays and miss these things often. But two major pop cultural slights towards iconic black women have occurred. And unfortunately, <laughs> they must be addressed. Mm. The first one is that there was a category about the Zulus. Okay. <laughs> Jeopardy was already putting itself in hot water with the the Zulus category. I'll put that out there right now. Yeah. A
1: whole category on the Zulus. Right. Yeah. I wish I'd seen the rest of the game.
3: Yeah. But like, usually when they have a category that's that specific, they couch it in like historical terms that they can apply to other things. So it's actually a little easier than you'd think. But anyway, lo and behold, you can guess what happened without even me telling you. They had to identify the leader, Shaka Zulu. And somebody buzzed in and said, who is Shaka Khan? (laughs) Okay. I will say the contestant herself seemed to express immediate regret after she was called wrong. Like she could hear that she had said the wrong thing. That said, maybe she needed that cue to know it was the wrong thing. Mm. And I've been thinking about Shaka Khan anyway because she was referenced and she was on RuPaul's Drag Race a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. as a guest judge. And one of the contestants, Widow Von Du, claimed to be a super fan. This man said to Shaka Khan, I have to thank you for through the fire. That is like me saying, I'm a huge Madonna fan. Madonna, I have to thank you for like a virgin. I don't believe him. That's not what a super fan would say. <laughs> you need to no deep fan. cut.
2: You need yeah, a deep Exactly. Cut? Okay. Yeah.
3: If like I'm clearly a bigger Shaka Khan fan than he is. You gotta bring up uh Do You Love What You Feel? Uh Any Love, uh, uh Her cover of We Can Work It Out. Uh, or her best song if you don't know my love is alive by shaka khan i'm telling you that will light up your day Mm it's a great dance song but um anyway so uh jeopardy contestant messed up shaka zulu messed up shaka khan okay a couple days later first of
1: all i am a i am a huge shaka khan fan and i will still say that my fave is probably um i feel for you
3: yes okay no i love a feel for you and prince wrote it obviously wonderful song okay we're gonna move on a couple days later, there was footage of Janet Jackson at the Billboard Awards performing. <laughs> the contestant was spotted the clue, control, and he buzzed in and said, who is Ariana Grande? What?
2: Now, let, let me say
3: I will say this. I will say this. If you didn't have any sound and didn't have the clue, control, Janet is styled like Ariana Grande in the clip. She has the high ponytail and the boots. That said, Also was Janet Jackson. There's just no (laughs) mistaking Janet Jackson's voice. Mm -hmm. And that song, she was singing Nasty in the clip, too. And so I just want to say, guys, let's just diversify our record collections. Go buy uh, your version of Amoeba Music. Pick up (laughs) 25 CDs for 25 cents Mm -hmm. and just learn the five or six. There's like seven Janet albums. Mm. Just pick them up. They're available. We can all educate ourselves and you'll have a good time. It's great music for the car.
1: I will say that the woman who correctly identified Janet Jackson after he was wrong was the woman who said Shaka Khan. So she did redeem herself.
3: Yes. And and, and I'm happy for her. Yes. And uh, uh, congrats to her.
1: Um, Yeah. And also, listen. Ariana is a white woman of color. I can see how. Yeah, she weird, often wears she
2: often wears Janet Jackson's foundation color. So, like that is you know that it makes sense that they would confuse her. So,
3: actually, maybe this is on Ariana Grande. Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. should I have pitched this at her?
1: <laughs> a lot of you guys have been asking about my foundation routine.
2: <laughs> Here's my thirty-eight step routine. For Vogue, where I put on seventeen layers of charcoal.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. So, my keep it this week. Ira is for my former employer. Oh, the Daily Beast. Okay, they haven't gone weekly yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the monthly beast? <laughs> you're not much. You're not much of a beast, then, are you? <laughs> Beast does a lot of hibernate.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, it's 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 back. I guess it's been two or three years, Beast. <laughs> <laughs> when they really go under, um, no. But this Daily Zine that I used to work at recently published an article, and unfortunately, this article was written by a former coworker and friend, Kevin Fallon. But You're going to get dragged for this article. I'm sorry, Kevin. Sorry,
2: Kevin. Uh,
1: And also, having worked there, I understand that Kevin had no part in writing this headline. But the piece is on the Netflix documentary, Becoming, which chronicles Michelle Obama's book tour from her um, book, Becoming, that came out last year. And it takes a quote from the documentary and blows it up into something that it is completely not. It blows it up into clickbait and incendiary um, nonsense uh, that is purely designed to have Twitter quote-tweeting this article and creating a stir for 24 hours or forever how long it takes until people get to actually see the documentary, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The headline is, Michelle Obama is mad at... Black voters, not Trump voters. That's my trauma. Now, here are the quotes. <laughs> in the documentary, she says, it takes some energy to go high and we were exhausted from it because when you are the first black anything, dot, dot, dot. So the day I left the White House and I write about how painful it was to sit on that stage, a lot of our folks didn't vote. It was almost like a slap in the face. I understand the people who voted for Trump, she continued, the people who didn't vote at all, the young people, the women, that's when you think, man, people think this is a game. It wasn't just in this election, every midterm, every time Barack didn't get the Congress he needed, that was because our folks didn't show up. After all that work, they just couldn't be bothered to vote at all. That's my trauma. Now, if you just read this, it sounds like this is all said in the same breath. Mm. Mm. And, And a black woman saying, our folks, obviously, you're going to think that that is black people. When this first started trending, I remembered, oh, hey, I have a screener for Becoming on Netflix. So I went and watched it. The first scene where she says, as the first black anything um a lot of our folks didn't vote it was almost like a slap in the face she is talking about black people she's talking to a classroom of black teenagers and honestly you know what it makes sense for a black elder in that moment just to be like listen the first black a lot of our folks didn't go vote it was a slap in the face etc when she gets into the thing about understanding the people who voted for trump obviously because they're racist um but the people who didn't vote at all, the young people, the women, etc, are folks. It is clear that she is talking about Democratic voters in general or people who mm-hmm. just stayed at home. And it is a completely different scene. So to write it out as if it were one complete thought is misleading. Um, and it makes you think that Michelle Obama is dragging black voters and contrasting them with, Trump voters when she is clearly not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The headline was changed from yesterday to Michelle Obama is mad at our folks, not Trump voters now, Um, instead of black voters.
2: Which rectifies nothing, though. Yeah.
1: It's a thing where, particularly like sometimes at the Daily Beast, when I worked there, um, this thing that the internet has about taking a story and designing it to create outrage and designing it for clickbait on the internet. And then what happens is we exhaust ourselves arguing over something that isn't true all day. And then by the time that it's proved the not to be true, we've either forgotten about it um, or you don't even really register it. You know, it's, it's that thing that we talked about with the Hillary Clinton documentary. You know, it's like... She can make that gaffe and talk about uh, I could have stayed at home and made cookies. Even after someone apologizes for that, you're always going to still remember that initial gaffe in your mind, you know, and the way that people talked about it. And I just think that we talked about like a- asshole like Ben Shapiro earlier, you know, like the Mr. Mix-Your-Flick of <laughs> the right. <Rain>. And... Um, <laughs> I think that when they spend so much time on the right trying to make us mad and creating clicks that anger up their base, it's so unfortunate that we also do the same. Because what is this now? People are arguing all day about a Michelle Obama quote that is misleading, that was misrepresented, and then when it comes time to actually have outrage about something on the internet, where does it go? You know, like we're exhausting our outrage in the wrong spaces um, at the wrong time.
3: This thing always happens online. This sheepish reaction to realizing that a quote was blown out of proportion or that we were arguing about the wrong thing where somebody will say, you know, at the end of their Twitter thread that they didn't delete something like, well, it could have been true. Which is like the most <laughs> ridiculous way of like trying to r- wrap up or like pseudo apologize for what happened. It just that I should happen
1: like, this mm-hmm. week too to Rose mm-hmm. Byrne. Right, Variety had an interview with her, and in the interview, she very sarcastically refers to Phyllis Schlafly as a feminist when talking about Miss America. However, when Variety shared the tweet uh, with her quote they neglect to mention the sarcasm and the laugh that she had with the interviewer by saying Phyllis Schlafly is a feminist. So, of course, we had an entire day of people dragging Rose Byrne, calling her a problematic fave because she was out here calling Phyllis Schlafly a feminist.
3: Meanwhile, if you watch Mrs. America... She's literally playing Gloria Steinem and Kate Blanchett is in basically full villain mode. We've discussed this on mm-hmm. the show. As Phyllis Schlafly, there is no universe in which Rose Byrne would think oh, Phyllis Schlafly, Rad Dame we should sell. <laughs> just, that makes no sense.
1: As I said, if there is just this constant tendency to create outrage for us and I think that at the end of the day it is exhausting because when we need The time to actually be mad about things you're exhausted or you're just filled with so much disinformation that you don't know what you're yelling at anymore
3: Or also yeah the legitimate things you're supposed to be mad about are way more complex than a single quote and i think a lot of people latch on to quote anger because it's it's just easier you know what i mean it's just like one soundbite you can sort of lay into as opposed to you know a whole concept well
1: anyway that's our show thanks for spinning the keep it wheel with us everyone
3: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for playing Tic Tac Keep It you know, whatever game yeah.
1: next week let's play a version of Singled
3: Out but keep it out
1: Ooh. <laughs>
3: 50 single hot takes and we only select one yeah.
2: actually that can very well be a reality let's talk about it after the show let's just let's turn this it.
1: into a dating show and have our <laughs> listeners call in and we'll set them up with people <laughs> I need a husband <laughs> Anyway, uh, (laughs) thank you to Andre Holland for joining us this week. And uh, we'll see you next
0: week.
1: Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline, like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week.